This is The Rounds Table. Hey there, listeners. Welcome back to The Rounds Table this week. Thanks for joining us. We've got a great show lined up for you today, and none other than our own Dr. Paxton Bach, who is a General Internal Medicine Fellow out at the University of British Columbia. Paxton, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks, Karen. Good to be back. So, Paxton, let's jump right in, tee it up, and tell us what you got on the uh, on the old block for us today. Sure. So I'm excited. I'm going to talk about a pretty major trial today, at least one that made a lot of waves in the mainstream media that came out just last month. This is the Fourier trial. Uh, so the full title is Evolocumab and Clinical Outcomes in Patients with Cardiovascular Disease. Uh, this is a trial that was run by the Timmy Study Group out of the Brigham and Women's Hospital. And the first author is Mark Sabatine, who is the chair of the Timmy Group and also known to any of you internists out there as the author of the red or green or purple book that so many of us carry around. Oh, I didn't know that. Neat trivia. Thank you so much. I use that book all the time. So, Paxson, take us through the bottom line. What's the main message that listeners are going to be listening for? So the bottom line in this trial and what caught everyone's attention in the media is that among patients with atherosclerotic heart disease who are already on moderate to high dose statin therapy, the addition of the biologic evolocumab, which is a PCSK9 inhibitor, resulted in a 1.5% absolute risk reduction in a composite outcome composed of cardiovascular death, MI, stroke, and hospitalization or coronary vascularization. Wow, we've been waiting for something big to come along in cardiology for a while here and it looks like we may have had that day. So, Paxson, why did you choose this article? What's the what's its importance in the context of cardiovascular medicine? Yeah, so I, th- I think this is a, an interesting trial, and we'll ask some interesting questions and follow up. Um, I chose it for a couple of reasons. Uh, first off, and, and probably foremost, is that we've known for years that reducing LDL with the use of statin drugs reduces cardiovascular risk. Uh, it's one of the cornerstones of uh, general internal medicine. How much of this reduction was secondary to LDL reduction versus some intrinsic property of statins has been a matter of debate. And we haven't had a lot of luck in demonstrating benefit with other medications until the Improve It trial came along just two years ago and showed a benefit, albeit a marginal one, to adding ezetimibe to low-dose statin therapy. So started to show that other agents that reduce LDL may have some benefit as well. Nonetheless, statins have remained the gold standard for us. And our Armamentarium is pretty bare once we go through our statin drugs. Yeah, so the, the pleiotropic effects of statins, but maybe that's going to be unraveled by these new uh, biologic medications. Yeah, yeah. So that's where, where, where PCSK9 inhibitors come in. So these are new new biologic drugs that many of us may have heard whispers about um, that were designed based on observations that PCSK9 loss of function alleles were found to be associated with lower levels of, of LDL and reduced risks of MI in, in patients who, who inherited this particular genes. Um, this makes biological sense. The molecule itself, the PCSK9 molecule, is responsible for binding up LDL receptors and preventing their recycling to the back to the surface of the liver to take up more uh, LDL. So PCSK9 prevents them from helping degrade LDL. And these PCSK9 inhibitors show great promise in their ability to reduce LDL in, in early trials. A biologic making biologic sense. Let's make sense of the methodology of this trial, Paxson. Take us through it. So this is a classic randomized, double-blinded, placebo-controlled trial. It was a very large study, again, coordinated out of Boston, but it was run at over 1,200 sites in 49 different countries across multiple continents. 
Wow. Yeah, yeah. The Amgen, who is, is the maker of the PCSK9 inhibitor, Evolocumab, was involved in study design and data collection for the study, but the, the analyses were hands-off. They, they, these were conducted independently of the sponsor by the group out of, of Boston, by the Timmy group. So who did they include in this study? So, as I mentioned, large study with a lot of patients included. Uh, the inclusion criteria, the average patient in, in the study was between 40 to 85 years old and had to have some evidence of atherosclerotic heart disease. And that could be by a history of MI or a history of a non-hemorrhagic stroke or even symptomatic peripheral arterial disease. In addition to having their atherosclerotic heart disease, patients needed to have a fasting LDL greater than 70 milligrams per deciliter or the units they use, which translates to a 1.8 millimoles per liter in, in Canadian units, and they needed to be on a statin. Okay, and then I think it's pretty straightforward, but what was the intervention for this this randomized trial? So they randomized patients between placebo and between receiving evolocumab, this human monoclonal antibody against PCSK9. Patients could either receive 140 milligrams sub-Q two weeks or a 420 milligram dose once monthly, and that was actually up to the patient and their preferences once they were randomized to one group or the other. And the primary outcome, I think you sort of mentioned in the bottom line? Yeah, so there was the primary outcomes they had a, they had a biologic primary outcome as well as what they called an efficacy outcome. So the primary outcome from a biologic standpoint was simply the monitoring of LDL levels and the, the degree of, of, of reduction that they saw in these patients receiving this additional drug. The efficacy out endpoint that they measured was a composite outcome. And as I mentioned, it was composed of a composite of cardiovascular death, of, of MIs, of stroke, of hospitalization for unstable angina, or receiving coronary revascularization. So a, a pretty broad composite outcome. So this is a secondary prevention cardiovascular trial with a typical MACE outcome that we see in our previous cardiovascular trials. Is that correct? Exactly, yeah. Okay, so I think it's pretty straightforward. Take us through the results. What did they find with this potential blockbuster drug? So on average, patients that were enrolled and received the, the treatment drug, um, they achieved a, a nearly 60% reduction in LDL, which is pretty impressive considering that they were already on a moderate to high dose statin and they already were, were averaging LDLs just over two at the beginning. So the median achieved LDL in these patients on the treatment drug ended up being just shy of 0.08 millimoles per liter. So very impressive reductions of their LDL. What kind of time frame did they look at for both the reduction in LDL and then when you'll get to it, the primary outcome of MACE? So the actual, the drop in the LDL was seen very rapidly and it was very, very sustained throughout the trial. It was seen within the first couple of months. The outcome that the end of the trial was after they reached a pre-specified number of these events and it occurred in this trial at 26 months, which incidentally was much quicker than they anticipated. Uh, they had a higher rate of events than they were expecting. So that's why it was such a short duration for this trial. All right, so take us through the primary outcome findings then. In terms of their, what they've termed their efficacy endpoints or their composite outcome, their primary endpoint occurred in just over 11% of patients receiving the placebo treatment and 9.8% of patients receiving uh, the efilocumab. Uh, in other words, they achieved about a 1.5% reduction in, um, in endpoints at the end of 26 months. Roughly the same degree of decrease was seen in a secondary outcome, which was composed of just cardiovascular death, MI, or stroke. So a little bit narrower composite outcome there. Hmm, that's very impressive. So Paxson, I'm interested to know, uh, I can imagine a situation where LDL lowering is important in post-secondary outcomes, but 
I'm thinking about a difference in patients who have suffered a stroke and therefore do not have drug eluting stents in place versus patients who have had a coronary syndrome uh, and might have had PCI. Um, and I can imagine situations where those rates of secondary outcomes might be different. Can you can you clarify for us a bit further what their patients look like as far as ACS versus stroke? Yeah, sure. So two parts to that question. So in terms of patients who were enrolled in the trial, as I mentioned, they were enrolled based on clinical evidence of atherosclerotic disease. And the majority of patients who enrolled were enrolled based on a history of previous MI. So roughly 80% of the patients who were enrolled had a, a previous MI as their enrollment criteria. I don't actually know how many of those had received PCI versus medical management versus cabbage for that MI, but, but certainly uh, an actual MI made up the bulk of patients enrolled. Uh, the the non-hemorrhagic stroke made up the, the other 20% of patients enrolled. In terms of in terms of outcomes and, and how that affected the outcomes, well, again, sort of two questions there. So when dividing into all the major subgroups based on uh, demographics, uh, there was no difference in, in the outcome reduction in any of the subgroups that they looked at. So that 1.5% absolute risk reduction was seen pretty continuously across the, the subgroup analyses, including um, when patients were divided by quartile based on their enrolling LDL level. So it wasn't like you were seeing a more significant amount of decrease in patients who had slightly higher LDLs on enrollment. It was pretty continuous across uh, all patients and enrolled. And then what in terms of what was driving that actual that actual benefit when they break break down their composite outcome into its individual components, this is more getting into more exploratory data, but it does seem that the outcomes were mostly driven by reductions in MI, in stroke, and in revascularization. Hmm. And did they do any kind of secondary analyses where they tried to correlate a so-called dose-dependent biologic effect? So not the dose of the medication itself, but the actual reduction in LDL, did that correlate to a reduction in their composite outcome? So I don't know whether they performed the specific analysis that you're suggesting there, Kieran, but what they did report here is fairly tight confidence intervals in the degree of reduction that they saw. So the the mean absolute reduction of LDL was 1.45 millimoles per patient, and the 95% confidence intervals there is 1.43 to 1.47. So a fairly tight range in the reduction. And then again, as I mentioned, when they looked at patients initially divided into quartiles by their starting LDL levels, they didn't see any difference there. So I don't expect that you'd see a, a huge difference in the analysis that you're suggesting. Yeah, you're right. Interesting. It seems to be a fairly uniform effect as far as the LDL lowering in each individual patient, which is kind of neat in and of itself. Um, anything else uh, interesting you wanted to point out about this particular trial, Paxson? The trial itself, I think, is very straightforward. It's simple to understand conceptually. You can ask whether we need to take with a grain of salt because the involvement of the pharmaceutical company, but the design appeared simple. The analysis was hands-off. And these results align with what we kind of already suspected around these medications based on uh, early phase two and three trials showing long-term cardiovascular risk reduction. Based on the Glagov trial last year, which did show um, reduction in atherosclerotic burden with these medications. So, so really a fairly straightforward trial design, and I'm inclined to believe these results. I don't, I don't have any reason not to. What's interesting are the implications here. We're seeing pretty comparable benefits, but here on a per millimole per liter basis with LDL reduction achieved with statins. So suggesting that, again, there's nothing special about these these monoclonal antibodies that that perhaps 
everything we're seeing here is being specifically driven by the reduction in LDL, which makes you ask, where might our targets end up if if uh, if we're showing a benefit with with aggressively lowering people below that, you know, currently accepted target of two. Yeah, there's a couple of interesting things that I thought about after reading this trial. One was along what you're saying is that there's been a bit of debate for the last few years since the release of the 2013 American Heart Association guidelines on lipids versus the Canadian guidelines where the U.S. guidelines do not treat to a target um, and Canadian guidelines treat to an LDL target of less than two in high-risk individuals. And so I wonder if this particular trial, you know, lends credence to the idea that we should be thinking about treating towards a target or the lower we go, the better, versus just looking at sort of the intensity of a statin that we treat patients with. Yeah, I and I thought the exact same thing when I read this is, is you know, at the time those recommendations from the AHA made sense. We were only seeing benefits with statins and nothing else. So why not take the approach that's studied and that's putting them on a target-based dose? But now we're seeing this is the third medication here which showing a dose-dependent effect on reducing LDL and, and showing benefits. So I think we're probably, the pendulum swinging back towards the uh, the Canadian approach. Yeah. And then the second interesting thing I thought, uh, you know, in the issue of the New England Journal of Medicine where they released the Fourier trial, there was also a couple of other trials looking at other PCSK9 inhibitors. And those trials saw a lack of durability of response because patients had developed their own set of antibodies against the antibody. And so I wonder if, you know, these medications are effective, but there might be a little bit of deterioration in their effect, uh, given their sort of biologic antigenic nature. So that's a great point, Kieran, and, and definitely something uh, to keep a watch out for. I think you're referring to bacokizumab, which I'm, I'm probably butchering the name, which is another humanized but not fully human monoclonal antibody against PCSK9. In contrast, uh, at, in, in this trial at least, at the end of 26 months, which admittedly is a short follow-up, no neutralizing antibodies were detected, and overall the LDL uh, lowering effect was very, very constant throughout. So perhaps in this fully monoclonal or fully humanized monoclonal antibody, um, that may be less of an issue. So Paxton, just bring it all back to us for the listeners. What's the main takeaway for this trial? The takeaway here is that in patients with atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, they benefit from the lowering of LDL cholesterol below current targets, uh, at least with PCSK9 inhibitors, and it strongly suggests overall. Interesting to see how these roll out into clinical practice and, uh, and the costs that are going to be associated with them. And that's a whole other question for another day. <laughs> exactly. Let's leave it at that. So I'll move on now. Thanks, Paxton, for taking us through that. It was very fascinating. This week, I'm going to shift gears a little bit. I looked at uh, the validation of a clinical decision rule in determining which patients are safe to discontinue anticoagulants after their first unprovoked venous thromboembolism. And this is the HERDU-2 rule, which was published in the British Medical Journal on March 17, 2017. I was really happy you chose this trial, Kieran. I was fascinated to read it. Um, it is no small thing to put somebody on lifelong anticoagulation, so uh, I'm really excited to see what we can learn from this. Right, so the bottom line for this study, it's it's actually not a trial. It's a prospect, prospective cohort study, which validated the previously derived HERDU-2 rule, and so allows safe discontinuation of anticoagulants in individuals with a first unprovoked VTE. And this was demonstrated by showing that the risk of recurrent VTE was only 3% per year in low-risk women who had been treated for 5 to 12 months on anticoagulant therapy and then stopped. 
That's very fascinating. So tell us a little bit more about why you chose to talk about this study today. Well, this is the first major study I've seen in a while that actually looks at stopping anticoagulation as opposed to starting anticoagulation or continuing it or changing it to a different class. So I thought it would be of great interest to our uh, listenership on the rounds table here. Now, just to put this a little bit into the context of the previous literature, about 50% of individuals who suffer a venous thromboembolism, that's a DVT or a PE, are actually unprovoked. And our current guidelines sort of across the globe from different societies indicate that you really should go on lifelong anticoagulation after your first unprovoked VTE because it's effective. So you you give about an 80 to 90% reduction in risk of recurrence on anticoagulants. Um, and the recurrence rate is actually quite concerning. So it's up to 10% or so in the first year after you have your first VTE and 30% at eight years after stopping anticoagulation. And a good portion of these can be fatal if they recur. Now, there's a major counteracting risk, obviously, on anticoagulation, and that's bleeding. And we look at about 1.3% bleeding risk per year. And some of that's major bleeding, and some of that major bleeding is also fatal. So it's never an easy decision to commit somebody to lifelong anticoagulation. So how do we balance these risks? How do we take the risk of recurrence and balance that against the risk of bleeding? And is there a way that we can identify somebody as low risk? Well, enter the HER-DO-2 rule. Here we go. That's a fascinating lead-in, Kieran. Um, as anyone who has ever worked in thrombosis knows, the guidelines are there, but you really enter murky waters when you're dealing with these patients individually. So any help that we can get based on evidence, I think, is going to be very much appreciated. So let's let's get into the weeds a little bit and tell me more about the, the methods that they've used to, to answer this question. It does get weedy, but let's go through it. So this was a prospective cohort study of individuals who suffered their first unprovoked venous embolism, and it was conducted at 44 secondary and tertiary care centers in seven countries across the globe. Oh, so big trial. And, uh, and tell us more about the patients that, uh, that were enrolled or the patients that they were looking at. So uh, this is fairly straightforward. They included patients who were referred for first unprovoked symptomatic proximal DVT or a segmental PE, so not distal DVT or subsegmental PE. And these patients had to be on between 5 and 12 months of anticoagulation treatment before they were considered for discontinuation in the, in the study. Now, you were excluded from the study if you had other reasons for anticoagulation. So, for example, you know, you had a mechanical heart valve or you had atrial fibrillation. You're not going to safely stop it in those individuals. And also, you were excluded if you had known high-risk thrombophilias, although in this day and age, there's very few indications to test for them. But some people we know have them, and so therefore, they are at a very high risk of recurrence. And then, uh, interesting also, if you were using exogenous estrogen, you were excluded from the study. Or if the VT that you suffered was pregnancy-associated, um, they excluded you from this study. It wasn't really trying to help figure out which pregnant women or women on estrogen could be stopped safely. Fair enough. Those are pretty strong provoking factors. Um, tell us uh, then, what does what, what the HERDU2 rule uh, tell us? Right. So, so they asked the question, can we identify low-risk individuals who can safely stop anticoagulation using a clinical prediction rule? And this clinical prediction rule that they've previously derived and internally validated is known as the HERDU2 rule. So HERDU2, as you can guess, is, a, uh, is an acronym. Um, and it uh, stands for the following. So H is for hyperpigmentation in the leg. E is for edema. R is for redness. 
D is for D-dimer greater than 250 micrograms per liter, and they use a Vitus D-dimer product. O, the first O of the two O's is obesity, um, and the second O is for older age, if you're over, over the age of 65. Each one of those parts scores one point if it's positive. So individuals who score one or less are considered to be low risk as per the previous derivation study that they conducted in 640 participants that had a risk of recurrence of less than 3%. And I think it's just really important, sorry Paxton, to point out one important thing for our listeners. It's only women that this rule can be applied to. They found that men, for whatever reason, are higher, higher risk of recurrence. So you can only apply this rule to women. And just to be clear, Kieran, this rule is applied at the time of diagnosis of the DVT, or is this at three months follow-up? This is at the time, so they've been on treatment for five to 12 months, and then they come back to clinic, and then they're assessed for the HERDU-2. Okay, so what did they do? So if you were low risk by the HERDU-2 rule, they stopped your anticoagulation with your permission. And then if you were a higher risk individual, the management was left to the discretion of the treating physician and the patient as a shared decision making themselves. Now the primary outcome that they looked at was the rate of recurrent symptomatic venous thromboembolism at one year. So this is a one year follow up study at this point in time. And participants were evaluated at six months and one year on an ongoing basis. They looked at secondary outcomes of major bleeding. That was defined as individuals requiring two units of packed red cells or a 20-point drop in their hemoglobin. Um, and they also looked at uh, mortality as a secondary outcome. And did they see any, any change in those secondary outcomes? So here's what they found. They enrolled 2,785 individuals in the study. But because you can only apply this rule to women, there was about 1,200 women 631 of which were considered to be low risk by the rule. So just about half of the women were low risk. Now, only 591 of them, or I should say a whole bunch of them, 591 of the 631 low risk women discontinued their treatment. Now, in the 591 low risk off anticoagulation uh, women, 17 of them developed recurrent venous thromboembolism over the course of follow-up which correlated on a time-dependent analysis to a 3% risk per year of recurring VTE. If you looked at high-risk women alone, there was a 7.5% risk of recurrence per year. So just a bit more than double the risk. And then in women who were low-risk but over the age of 50, which is kind of an interesting point, and were postmenopausal, the recurrence risk was actually in about 5.5%. So there's sort of a bit of a uh, uncertain window there in women who are over 50 and postmenopausal. Now, if you just wanted to look at the risk of recurrence as the whole group, the whole cohort, that's men and women who were considered high risk, the risk was about 8% per year for recurrence of VTE. And if you stayed on your anticoagulation, well, about a percent and a half of those people would go on and get a recurrent VTE anyways. So overall, you can see that you know, the application of this HERDU-2 rule fairly accurately predicts those who are, who are deemed to be low risk and turn out to be low risk with a, you know, 3% per year risk of recurrence, which is deemed to be adequate by the International Society of Hemostasis and Thrombosis. So any other interesting points in this trial that you'd like to point out to us, uh, Kieran? Yeah, just, just a couple of things. The rate of major bleeding uh, on anticoagulation was about 1.2% per year. I think that's fairly reflective of overall uh, 
real-world sort of practice. They're not particularly high risk. They're not particularly low risk. And if you were off anticoagulation, your rate of major bleeding was 0.3% uh, in this particular study. I just found it interesting that 40 women in the low-risk group decided to continue treatment. That's about 6%. So I wonder what real-life practice will reflect when patients and their physicians are engaging in shared decision-making, even with application of this rule. Will that come out to be the same, or will we find something different? That doesn't surprise me too much, but you know, based on my experience, I think the average person wants to get off medications as as, as soon as possible. But there's certainly some people who are are so afraid of certain outcomes and and have had a reasonably easy time taking a medication that they'd rather uh, hedge their bets and do everything they can to avoid a future VTE, even if they are at low risk. The the other question that I have that I don't really have an answer for in this case is. So the treatment window that these people referred to the study was between 5 and 12 months. So if I see a patient, you know, at 6 months after they've been on treatment with anticoagulation, what do I do with them for the remaining 6 months of that first year when their risk of recurrence is highest? Should I treat them for the full year and then stratify them with the HERDU2 rule? Or should I stratify them at six months with the HERDU2 rule? That There's a little bit of discomfort that I have in that time frame. Yeah, that's interesting. And, and I guess they don't offer any explanation there. I mean, we typically see patients, the first follow-up is going to be three months. So what do we do at that point? Yeah, that's that's sort of not entirely clear to me in this uh, in this particular case. So I guess we'll just have to sort of still work through the weeds a little bit in that uh, in that timing. So I think, you know, for our listeners, just to bring it all together, if you have a young woman with a first unprovoked venous thromboembolism sitting in your office and you're discussing how to proceed with management, you apply the HERDU2 rule score as a validated clinical decision rule to safely recommend stopping anticoagulation for her. And don't forget, though, that the subgroup analysis raises alarms, it's not definitive, about the postmenopausal woman who's over the age of 50 we're not really sure about the safety of stopping anticoagulation in them. Hmm. That's fascinating. All right. Well, thanks, Paxton. Now let's go on to my favorite part of the show. It's the good stuff segment where we're talking about what we are reading about. Paxton, what are you reading about this week? So I, I wanted to talk about an article I was reading this week, which caught my eye about vitamin C. Now, I don't know what your experiences with vitamin C is, but I certainly see a lot of patients who present wanting to treat various symptoms or or medical issues with vitamins and minerals and supplements. And I have never seen much literature out there to validate that, uh, particularly vitamin C for the common cold. But I was reading an article this week that suggests that vitamin C may actually be a treatment for life-threatening sepsis. So uh, there was a uh, physician, uh, an intensivist in eastern U.S. who was fed up with his patients dying of septic shock and tried on a whim, based on some literature that he had seen that was quite speculative, to treat a a septic patient with vitamin C, thiamine, and hydrocortisone in in addition to his usual treatments. And sure enough, he showed up the next day and this lady who he thought was going to die ended up looking surprisingly well. He carried on doing this and has actually just published a case series in the journal Chest um, describing really incredible outcomes with this cocktail of vitamin C and thiamines, and they're attributing it to maybe some antioxidant effect or or something like that, such that they've actually received a huge grant to study this further. So, 
you know, maybe it may not be uh, the cure for the common uh, coronavirus, but when it turns to overwhelming sepsis and ARDS, is, is vitamin C the next, uh, is, is it going to be our magic bullet? <laughs> Linus Pauling would be proud. It's interesting. We'll see what, what happens. I'm a little skeptical, but I'll still take my vitamin C regardless. So uh, I came across something in the Atlantic Health section this this week that's uh, I always have a fascination with, you know, psychological or human psychology and how it interfaces with health. And so this is about a concept called temporal discounting uh, in behavioral economics. And it's being applied to healthy food choices. So specifically, there is a behavioral researcher at Rush Medical College in the United States named Brad Appelhans. And he's looked at inputting a 25 second delay device in vending machines for unhealthy foods and if you have if you delay a human's gratification uh, so in this case they push a button they get a chocolate bar um, or they push a button and they get an apple and it takes 25 seconds longer to get a chocolate bar it's more likely that a human will go and pick the apple because their gratification is delayed and such they take the path of least resistance in this case. And so it's, they're talking about this as a potential way to, on a public health policy level, sort of have preventative health measures by putting a time tax on unhealthy foods. So that'd be kind of neat. <laughs> this is like the equivalent to, to sending somebody to the corner to think about what they've done when you ordered a candy bar? <laughs> <laughs> Something like that, but a little more direct, I guess, when it comes to the candy bar machine being the, the bad guy in this case. Well, thanks, Paxson, for a great week uh, and for talking to us about what I think you'll hear a lot more about with the PCSK9 inhibitors. Uh, it's been a pleasure having you on the show as always, and we look forward to having you back on next time. Absolutely. Take care, Kieran. Thanks. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can find us at healthydebate.ca slash theroundstable, follow us on Twitter at roundstable, or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. Thanks for joining us this week. Who knows what the wonderful world of medicine holds for next week.